Good evening and welcome to our evening service. Good to see you here this evening. Good to see folks joining us on Zoom as well. Again, we want to welcome Don and Marlene Theobald with us today. Hadn't seen them for a little while and they're back with us and we rejoiced in that. We enjoy the ministry this morning and the message we had. Look forward to this evening as well. We're going to ask Don now to come and uh, read the scripture, this evening's scripture, and lead us in prayer, Don. Well, it's been a beautiful Lord's Day and uh, always great to close out this day with the people of God. And if you'd like to take your Bible, please and turn to the Old Testament hymn book, Psalm number 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that tells us of not only the opposition that the Messiah King will experience, but his ultimate triumph. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we close out this day, you've already heard us sing part of our prayer to you. We want to be the kind of people that express very tangibly the grace and the goodness and the salvation of the Lord. But we confess that we ourselves, because we have been recipients of salvation, still have sin to confess and still, still have ways to go. So we thank you for the pardoning grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge that we fall far short of what we know, what we've experienced, what the gospel tells us about the gospel. But we do thank you that we are growing and that we are progressing. And we thank you that we are less and less like ourselves and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for our country. We pray that you would have mercy on us as a nation. We have for so long known much good and blessing and bounty from God, and yet we have made decrees and laws and decisions that will provoke you to anger and to wrath and to judgment. And we pray that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us. We pray that you would send your spirit and he might turn this nation around, that there might be a real work of revival And multitudes would cry out, what must we do to be saved? 
And we pray that the answer would come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We pray, Father, that you will bless, as was mentioned earlier, we think of shut-ins and those who um, are finding it more difficult to be out and to be around. And we thank you that if they belong to you, that your spirit dwells within them. We thank you that even their aging bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that while the elder person is wearing out, the inner person is going from faith to faith and from grace to grace and even from glory to glory. We look forward to that day when we will never have to pray in that way again, when we will never have to confess sin. We look forward to that day when all of our praying will be praise and adoration and celebration and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come at the end of human history in glory and majesty. We look forward to that day when our body and our soul will be perfect, that we will never be weary in worship or work for the Lord. We look forward to that day when our minds will not be distracted. We look forward to that day when we will not in any way be thrown off by pain or uh, just the, the trials of getting old. But forever and ever and ever, we will be able to love our Savior and to serve Him perfectly. And we'll be able to love one another and serve one another perfectly. But until that day comes, give us the grace to be faithful. Help us to press on and persevere. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing. And help us to constantly look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the throne of heaven that today bears the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we thank you that he micromanages the universe for the good of his church and for the glory of his Father. Help us to worship with great joy tonight, with praise, with hope, with faith. Help us to press on May the things of this earth grow increasingly dim in the light of your glory and your grace. We pray these things for Jesus' sake, because he loved us, because he gave his life for us, and because he's coming again for us. So it's in his name we worship. Amen. Well, again, Marlene and I want to thank you very much for the privilege of worshiping with you today. Again, we want to thank you for your kind prayers over this uh, last number of months. And uh, we rejoice that Marlene's feeling much better. Um, and we pray if you have room in your prayer calendar to continue to pray for us. We'll be moving by the end of August. And we're all both getting a little bit old. And uh, fortunately, we have some strong children and grandchildren but still, it's kind of hard if you've ever had to make that move later in life. So, um, would you take your Bible and again turn to the Gospel of Mark, and this time chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, I'm going to read the first six verses, and we will pray again, and then we'll dive into the passage. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. 
And again he, and the he there, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of, at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we close out this beautiful day that once again we can put ourselves under the, the power and the truthfulness and the grace of the Word of God. We thank you that we have the privilege to worship you in freedom to have the Bible in our own language, to be able to um, listen without being disturbed and able to seek to understand you and your word better. And so we thank you for all of these things, but we also thank you for the Holy Spirit. It is he who caused this word to be written and inspired, and it, it is he who must cause it ultimately to be proclaimed in such a way that it is heard and it is understand and it is believed. So we ask that the work of the Spirit would continue in our midst, that he would have freedom, that we would not put up barriers, that we would not have areas of our life where we put up no trespassing signs because of secret sin, we pray that the Spirit of God would work in us and cause us to see and to understand and to get it. We pray that the Spirit of God would show us Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. We find ourselves this evening in the fifth of five controversies that uh, Mark, the Gospel writer, puts right at the beginning of his gospel. There will be later controversies as you go through the gospel. And of course, they will culminate with questions leading up to his arrest and his trials and his crucifixion. What's interesting about these controversies is, first of all, that they are produced by Jewish people, by religious Jewish people, by people whose entire life seems to be consumed with knowing and pleasing God. These controversies come from people who claim to be looking for the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. As I mentioned this morning, these men, and I assume their wives, and at least some of their children, were fastidious in terms of their keeping of what they perceived as the law of God. When Jesus came on the scene, you would have thought they'd be thrilled. 
But they weren't. Because this man, Jesus, really was not impressed with them as impressed as they were with themselves. And he constantly sought lovingly, but firmly and truthfully, to show them that they were in desperate need of a Savior as the worst person they have ever met. All of the people on this planet need a Savior. There is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. That's that's a, a sobering analysis of the human condition. But these religious people were convinced that they were the exception, that they were the Pharisees, the separated ones, and that they truly love God. And the more Jesus taught, the more he became popular, the more he demonstrated that his words were from God because his actions did amazing divine things that nobody had ever done before, the more they were determined to get rid of Jesus. It's very interesting. There should be a process that you go from a crime or a case to a verdict to a sentence. But these Pharisees began with the sentence, this man deserves to die. They then went to the verdict, he is guilty. But their problem was they didn't have a case. There there was no crime. And they were constantly looking for something that would convict Jesus of being a sinner. Not only a sinner, but a worse sinner than they were. And so all the way through, they have have, um, endeavored to catch him, as we saw this morning, in violating the word and the will and the law of God. Now, as we come to the passage tonight, we want to see it in the light of three things. First of all, the setup. Secondly, the silence. And thirdly, the sentence. First of all, then the setup. We know from the scriptures that it was the custom of the Lord Jesus Christ to gather with the people of God in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That was their holy day. And as it was his custom, he, w- he would go, um, probably from the time he was a young fellow, with Mary and with Joseph and brothers and sisters to synagogue. And then certainly, of course, when he um, began his public ministry. And in verse 1, we read that, again, he entered the synagogue. Now, when he went to synagogue... There was a man there with a disability. It says that his disability was found in the functioning of his hand. It it says here that it was a withered hand. It, It probably was a hand that in some way, either through disease or through accident, had been disfigured so that it was no longer able to function as a hand should. Now, so far my hands function pretty good, especially when they're going from the plate to my mouth. Probably going too good. But I know what it's like to have legs that don't function like they should. And um, this man 
whether he knows it or not, he's a plant. This is a setup. The Pharisees were at synagogue that Sunday as well, and they probably seated him, the ushers probably seated him in a place in the synagogue where Jesus would not miss seeing him. And of course, the Pharisees, they seated themselves in a place where they could watch the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, it says, and they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus. Now, it's not just like you and I on a Sunday morning, you know, quarter to 11, 10 to 11, whatever it might be, and oh, uh, the Smiths are here. Oh, it's nice to see the Browns back from vacation. Okay, they, they are watching with an intent, with an evil intent, actually. And they are watching Jesus very, very carefully. And and this is a staggering statement. And they watched him in verse 2 to see whether he would heal this man. Now, this word would is different from the word could. Could is a word of ability, isn't it? I could do something, I can do something, or I can't do something. I can't heal people with anything withered, or you would say, physician, heal yourself first. And, and, and it, they are not doubting that Jesus Christ has the ability to heal this man. And we need to notice that, that Remember Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus at night, he says, we know that you must be a man from God because no one can do these miracles that you do. There, uh, there is no phony stuff here. There is no sleight of hand. There is no, you know, mirrors and smoke and all that stuff. There is no fake stuff. The, the Lord Jesus Christ had the ability to actually bring people into a state as if there was no fall in the world, as if there was no sin in the world, as if this is what life would be like if we were all still in the Garden of Eden. If we were still in the Garden of Eden, there would be no bum hips, there would be no wrinkles, there'd be no memory loss, there'd be no, um, oh, look at those two old people at the, you know... (laughs) See, I listen too. <laughs> There'd be none of that. And wouldn't it be wonderful? But because Adam and Eve sinned, because we live in a fallen, cursed world, there is all kinds of evidence. In fact, in every person on this planet, there is evidence that there's something radically wrong with this world because there's radically wrong, something radically wrong with them. And there are supermodels, There are star athletes that seem physically to have nothing wrong with them, but oh, there's something seriously wrong in their hearts and in their lives and their conduct and behavior. So they are watching. This has been a setup. They're watching to see if Jesus would, if he willed, if he desired. Not that he can. They knew that. But would he heal this man? 
And of course, uh, the the trick is, <clears throat> would he heal him on the Sabbath? Now, if you remember all the way back to earlier this afternoon, um, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. And in it, you are to do no work. Remember, they had 39 categories of what work was. Even grabbing some granola on the way to church would be work. And so they're watching to see if Jesus will will heal this man on the Sabbath. Now, the reason is not so that they can praise and celebrate and go up to this withered man after, after the service and shake his hand and say, isn't this wonderful? They are looking for something that Jesus is going to do so that they might accuse him. Accuse him of breaking the fourth commandment, the law of God. I don't know if you've ever tried to witness somebody that's maybe part of your family or a close friend, and and they've obviously rejected the gospel. But what happens is that they seek, now that they've heard the gospel, now that they've heard your testimony, they're seeking to find something wrong with you. I love history. And Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States, was raised in a Calvinistic home. He rejected the gospel, the Bible, and he was determined, he was convinced that he could live as godly a life without Jesus as a professing Christian could with Jesus. Now, he wouldn't admit it, but he failed. And these men are determined to find sin in Jesus Christ. Now, we have to be careful because we can be like that too. When things don't go quite the way you prayed, when life isn't working out like it should from your perspective, it, it's, it's easy to begin to accuse God of sin, frankly. And if you've witnessed to people, how many times, well, I used to believe in God, but he let me down. My mother died, or a good friend, or whatever it might be. And somehow God has failed the test that we have set for him. And of course he hasn't. He is incapable of sinning. God could not sin if he wanted to. But, They are looking. Remember, they've got the sentence. He deserves to die. They've got the verdict. He's guilty. All they have to do is find a crime. And they set it up so that he would commit a crime on the Sabbath, that he would actually work on the Sabbath and sin against God. Well, that's the setup. The silence. In verse 3, 
Jesus, and this alone should prove that he is God, that he is divine. He, he knows what's going on in these characters' minds. And, and he says to the man who's sitting in church, he says, come here. That would be like me tonight saying, you, come up here and stand by the pulpit. And you come up and your hand's paralyzed. And, and what is he trying to do? Embarrass this man? Humiliate him? Often people with a disability will, will try to kind of hide that, won't they? Um, and Jesus beckons the man to come up and stand in front of the entire congregation. And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says, um, I got a question. Is it lawful and again, he's not talking about the law of Ontario. He's talking about the Mosaic law. Does the law of God, is it lawful on the Sabbath? On the seventh day, this day of ceasing and resting from our labors, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Hmm, that's a very interesting way of thinking about the Sabbath, isn't it? We think of the Sabbath in terms of behavior. Is it okay to get gas on Sunday or to go to the Swiss chalet or to whatever it might be? We think of the Sabbath in terms of what we can do and what we cannot do. And the Pharisees thought that way. I kept the Sabbath because I had lunch in the basement of the church. How's that? Not only did I not go out, but I actually ate in the church building. But the Lord Jesus Christ says the Sabbath is for another reason. It is for doing good and it is for saving life. That makes it very different, doesn't it? It's not so much what I didn't do today, but what did I do? And it makes it, the, the, the Sabbath, as a, a, a thing that is designed to extend in a fallen world the blessing and the goodness and the benediction of God to a fallen, cursed world, to, to people who have been damaged tremendously by sin. And not all of us have withered hands or legs that don't work so well, but we've all been greatly, greatly damaged by sin. And and what Jesus is saying is that I, I've got a question. Is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now remember, these guys are experts in the law. They've got their PhD in theology. And we won't go through all the stuff they know. But they're a walking encyclopedia on the Bible. And remember, these guys not only know the Bible, but they've made up 39 other rules to help you to keep the Bible. 
They've analyzed down to the smallest degree what work is on the Sabbath. So they'd be the right guys to ask, wouldn't they? What's their response? It says they were silent. You could hear crickets in that church. Life is never neutral. You don't feel that you've had a good day because you just didn't do nothing. You're either going to do good or you're going to do evil. You're either going to help in that sense to save life, to further the life of people, or to destroy life. You're either going to say a kind word at the cashier or you're going to growl and look impatiently and kind of grab your receipt and leave. We're never neutral. And and these Pharisees knew that they were trapped because it's like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? If you say yes, I've stopped beating my wife, that doesn't look good. If you say no, I haven't stopped beating my wife, that doesn't look good either, does it? And every one of those Pharisees would have to admit that obviously the intention of the Sabbath is to to do good, to preserve life. Now, in verse 5, it's very interesting. Everybody's looking at church. Uh, the Pharisees were looking at Jesus. I'm sure the entire congregation was looking at that poor man standing up there with the withered hand. But Jesus is looking at people as well. And he looked around at them with Anger. That's an attribute that we find very hard to deal with. That God is a God of anger and wrath and fury. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is a a Savior who looks and expresses anger. He's not amused. He's not shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, boys will be boys and Pharisees will be Pharisees. He looks at these people with incredible anger. Do you know why? Because, first of all, they were absolutely insensitive to the pain of the man with the withered hand. They're using him as part of their little play to trap Jesus They'll do it other times. They bring a woman caught in adultery. And if she was caught in adultery, where's the other guy? Takes two to commit adultery. They are insensitive to people as people made in the image of God and bearing the marks and the scars and the effects of the fallout of the fall. Secondly, do you know why you go to synagogue? To worship. To worship the Lord. This is like, you know, their little kids drawing on their little envelopes 
hangman or something. Well, church is going on. Well, if the kid's three or four, you understand it to some degree. But these are grown men with their PhD in theology, and they're not there to worship the Lord. With all of their biblical knowledge, with all of their experience, with all of their rigorous religious activity, they went there to worship God. And most astounding of all, when God is in their midst, when God is in their midst, they want to get rid of Him. They want nothing to do with Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ looks at them with great anger, but it's an anger that's mixed with grief. And the grief here is not, oh, rats, the Leafs didn't win the cup again. Maybe next year. This is grief that you find at a funeral, at the death of someone. In his anger, he is moved with great grief and sorrow and lamentation that these people, of all people, had hard hearts. That doesn't mean their arteries were, you know, getting hard because of what they ate. It means that their spiritual hearts were becoming cement-like. And the irony of the whole thing is that they're immersed in the Bible. Their whole life is going to church and reading the Bible and praying and fasting. They fast on Tuesday and Thursday. When they come in, they're way ahead of all this COVID stuff. When they went out, you know, to Fresh Co. or Fortino's, they'd come home afterwards, they wash good, and they'd make sure. And they, they, they were constantly making sure that they would not get contaminated with the sins of this world. But they had hard hearts. And here is the Messiah in their midst, and they're setting him up so that he can sin on the Sabbath. And remember, the Sabbath is the covenant sign of the Mosaic law, and they can find a reason why that their sentence of death should be carried out. Well, he looks at them, and he speaks to the man with the withered hand. Now, the problem with the fourth commandment is this. There's two parts to the commandment. And if you're not doing both, you haven't kept the commandment. What's the first part of the commandment? Six days you shall work. Ever try to work with a paralyzed hand? They have no concern that that poor man is not able to carry out his function and, and being able to work and, and be able to accomplish things for the glory of God. And then Jesus does something that is amazing because they're wanting him to work on the Sabbath and violate the Sabbath. So what does he do? Does he go over, grab the guy's hand, and do this and that and the other thing? And, you know, no. He merely speaks a word. He says, 
stretch out your hand. Now that command is humanly impossible. It would be like Jesus coming in here tonight and say, Don, walk straight and go fast down the aisle. That's humanly impossible for me. Don't you doubt it. If I could do that, I would do that. (laughs) Not till the end of the service, but I would do that. Okay. Jesus is speaking to a man and telling him to do the humanly impossible. Have you noticed that in the Gospels? How many times he says that? Lazarus has been dead how many days? Jesus goes to the tomb, says, Jesus, come forth, or Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Little girl, arise. And she does. Do you know anybody in the Bible who merely speaks and things come into being? How about Genesis 1? And it said God worked all day and fooled around with this and did that and the other thing, and he made light. And then he did some more stuff the next day, worked some chemicals and all this stuff, and he made water. No. God merely spoke and said, let it be, and it was. Now, if you've ever been a parent and you spoke to your children, it was a miracle if they actually listened and did what you said. Right? But imagine going up to a man who's paralyzed, either through disease or accident, and say, I, I want you to do the humanly impossible. And the man goes like, wow. And the astounding thing is that Jesus didn't work. And he healed that man on the Sabbath. And there's only one being that merely speaks words and things that weren't now become true. And that is God. Now, he just looks like a peasant from the north province of Galilee. If you were to check Jesus' hands, they would be calloused. He's a carpenter. His clothes were very basic. I say it very respectfully. There is probably some body odor. There's a man who had to sleep, had to eat, had to go to the bathroom. And yet he merely speaks. And this man is able to do the humanly impossible. The sentence... Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held a praise meeting. They got their charismatic friends and the Salvation Army people with their tambourines and trumpets. And yes, even the odd Baptists might say hallelujah. And they just rejoiced and rejoiced and they sang our evening prayer, didn't they? Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. No. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, who in the world are the Herodians? They were everything that the Pharisees weren't. 
In fact, the Pharisees hated the Herodians and the Herodians hated the Pharisees. You, you know what the Herodians were? They were like the French who sided with the Germans during the Second World War. Or the Dutch who sided with the Germans in the Second World War. These people were traitors. They wet their finger, put it up, and they saw which way the wind was blowing. And they said, listen, <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them. And the best way to get along is to get along. The Herodians were Jewish people who said, look, at, we're no idiot. This is the most powerful kingdom in the world, the Romans. And we're going to play ball with them. And we'll compromise. We'll do whatever we have to do to save our neck being the place where our head is severed from our body. And the Pharisees detested them. They were traitors. They were as bad as the tax collectors and the publicans who were compromising people with the hated Romans. But it's amazing you know, if you hate somebody bad enough, you can find somebody else who hates somebody bad enough. And you can be friends. The Second World War, the United States, Britain, France, sided with communist Russia to defeat Germany. And, and these people are so determined to get rid of Jesus that they even cozy up with the people they absolutely detest. Now, you remember the question that was asked at church that Sunday, Saturday? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They went out, they met with these Herodians to discuss what? how they could do evil, how they could kill, how they could destroy God. The people who claimed to be the keepers of the Sabbath and the guardian of the way of the Lord, the people who were convinced that they would keep this nation from again going into captivity, were the most evil of all the people. In 40 years, this nation will be destroyed by Rome and the Jewish people will be scattered. Phariseeism saves no one. It protects no one. And Phariseeism would kill Jesus if they could. That's sobering, isn't it? That I am so convinced of my righteousness and my rightness that I don't even want Jesus to get in the way. Here's a man, 30-something, not overly attractive, as Isaiah says, a peasant carpenter from the north. It's like he was from Newfoundland if he was in Canada. And this man merely speaks and a man who's been deformed probably for years is miraculously able to work his hand again and 
When Sabbath's over, he'll be able to pick up a hammer or a saw or to hold his little granddaughter or to do all the things that he wanted to do, but he couldn't because of the effect of the fall on the human race. And here's a man who merely spoke as if it was Genesis 1. And he said, let it be. And it was. You see, the Pharisees already had the sentence, didn't they? This man needs to be put to death. And we'll even want to do that on the Sabbath. Now, if you remember this morning, I said, Mark has written this gospel in one way to kind of hide Jesus because people would flock to him because of things like this. Healings and miracles and and crowds being fed. But Mark wants us to not miss it, that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know how this gospel will end? A pagan Roman soldier who's been to hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. What does he say? When he watches Jesus die, he says, truly, this is the Son of God. When a crook and a skunk is on his side and he rebukes his friend and he says, you and I deserve what we're getting. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he looks to Jesus, and when you come into your kingdom, can I be a part of it? And Jesus says, yes. He's a great Savior. But as C.S. Lewis says in the Tales of Narnia, he's a lion, but he's not a tame lion. He is not a Jesus that we kind of control and fashion, and he's not Aladdin's lamp in Christian terms. He is God. And he comes, he came to this world, amazingly, the God who has sinned against says, I will do something about their sin. You know what Jesus did on that cross that day? He exhausted and extinguished in himself, body and soul, the anger of God, the wrath of God. What an amazing Savior that he not only took upon himself all of our sin, but he took upon himself all of God's wrath for all of our sin so that we might be healed and we might one day live in paradise again. And what is astounding, and we'll close with this, is eternal life is not something you get when you die. Eternal life is not something that will happen when Jesus returns. The Bible says the moment you believe in Jesus, you have right now eternal life and you will never perish. You will never perish. Oh, we need to keep our hearts soft, don't we? Especially towards Jesus. We need to be people who are humble before him. We're never to put him to the test. We're never to set up things, see if he can pass our test. But oh, we come with our diseases and with our 
infirmities and with our deformities and with all of the things that we have both inside and outside. And we just come and worship. You know the last thing that man expected that Saturday at church was to meet Jesus. The last thing he expected was to be supernaturally healed. You imagine what it was like that day when he went out of church with his wife and they held hands. That had been wonderful, wouldn't it? You see, the commandment says, I've been saved to work and to worship. In myself, I'm incredibly deformed, both by nature and by choice. The only remedy for me is Jesus, that he would say words to me, words of mercy and grace and pardon that heal. I'm not asking him to do things. I'm just asking him to be true to his word, and I will be blessed in this age and in the age to come. And you may be here tonight. It's amazing in the gospel how many people were at church who weren't saved. And if you don't know them, oh, come to them. You come out with your hands up and you just say, I'm sorry. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of playing games. I come to a Savior who is able to save me to the uttermost and especially to save me from a hard heart. We're going to respond to the word of God, ask our brother to come and lead us, and then we'll be dismissed into the benediction of a God who's literally out of this world.